Hello, listeners. It is January the 18th, 2021. Today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I wanted to give you a little bit of background about myself and then read a speech. So, the first bit of background is that I never really liked Martin Luther King Jr. Day because it was the only day on the calendar where black people were even looked at. <laughs> um, well, Juneteenth, but that's not really a day. So let's let's talk about um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um. The reason why I didn't like it, and the reason why I didn't like one day being pointed out for us, was the fact that I'm not an exa- I'm not an example. I should not just because of the color of my skin be looked at as a token, and I don't need a day. And because of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday being recognized by the United States government as being an important day, I, as a child, was forced to listen to the history of Martin Luther King Jr. every year. And I would think, gosh darn it, I know who this person is. Is there anything else that I can listen to today instead of being held home from school to listen to the history of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and relive the sitting at the um, shop counters, having sit-ins, and hearing about people having their skin torn off by fire hoses and police dogs because they were black. Why, why, why do people have to bring up history of black people being persecuted because they were black or being, uh, having racist things happen to them because they were black? And why is it that today all of the famous black people get together and talk about how far they've come and how far they have to go and how important blackness is today and only today. And so you have Oprah and you have all the black actors and singers and former President Obama all out there doing their thing and raising their fists and saying, we are black people, hear us for, for one day. I hated hated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And even worse, I hated Black History Month. I'm like, Black People Month? Like, we get a month? Like, one month? 28 days? Woo-woo! Black History Month! So, this is the month when, like, every 28 Black people (laughs) are remembered for their contributions to society because they're Black. And, oh my gosh, these Black people overcame their Blackness to do some amazing things. Oh, I hated it. And then there was Juneteenth, which, you know, to people who don't know what Juneteenth is, they just think that it's like some celebration for black people to come together and dance and entertain themselves and sell shit, which is not true. 
I mean, Juneteenth was the day that the slaves in the South heard that they were, that the North had won the Civil War and that they were no longer slaves. <laughs> June 19th. Juneteenth. But if none of that stuff is explained to you, then it, it just, it just seems like a mockery of being black. Um, falsehoods being shared and people um how do i say this taking every black stereotype that's out there and magnifying it because that's what we do on black holidays like martin luther king jr day and um and black history month in juneteenth those are the black holidays oh and then there's that kwanzaa deal that happens sometime around christmas it's kind of like the black hanukkah serious people if you don't know what you're talking about do some learning and some history and learn what the heck these things are oh so i used to hate them all hate them all now <laughs> as a mature 43 year old adult i no longer hate martin luther king jr day actually i think martin luther king jr was a pretty impressive person not just because of the march across the bridge or the fact that he got to talk to the United States president, or he did amazing things for the civil rights community. But the fact that he was married twice, um, he was a flawed person, um, but even though he was flawed, he had a passion and he stuck with that passion. And he was an amazing speaker who, for my conservative friends, drives me crazy when people try to speak like him because they think it's gonna like you know rally the black community oh, i hate that so when president obama tried to pull martin luther king jr and speak like him i'm just like oh my gosh please don't please don't oh you're doing it oh gotcha so you've got the whole like preacher thing down you know, I don't know if anyone, and I mean, I might be ranting here and I'm six minutes into it, but this is just my deal today. Okay. So, um, I don't know if anyone else out there has noticed, but preachers have a certain accent. It's the preacher scent. Um, and it's, it's a certain way that preachers speak. And I can't replicate it. I just, I, I don't have that ability because I'm not a preacher. And, but you know, like the Southern Baptist preachers and like the, the evangelical preachers and the ones who are like, you know, rearing up the crowd. It's that speak. And that's what Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used. And, um, or Martin Luther King Jr. PhD. Or even better, Michael King, which is his actual name. Um, so Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Um, used the preacher speech, but not as, as he did it in a good way. Most preachers do it in a pretty crappy way, honestly. Um, I like when preachers just talk instead of trying to do this sing-songy, lithy, preachy thing. Just talk to me. Come on. Now, on that note, um, oh, and by the way, I absolutely loved that for many, many years, Southeast Polk students did not get Martin Luther King Jr. Day off. People hated it. And I loved it because, you know, 
are you going to sit in school and learn about black history and learn who Martin Luther King Jr. is? Or do you get to take the day off of work and, or I'm sorry, off of school and do what? Like sleep in and then, you know, treat like it's a snow day because, you know, it's January. <laughs> you can't really do anything. And so it gives you a three-day weekend when your parents are actually at work, right? Unless, of course, your parents work for the state like I do and I don't have work today. So did I do anything honoring Martin Luther King Jr. today? No, not yet. I'm doing this podcast, but, you know, no. Um, except for living my life as a black person who, you know, is out, who is proudly black and proudly conservative, which, by the way, Martin Luther King Jr. was conservative. Imagine that. All about family values, all about faith, all about religion, all about, you know, treating people justly but not equality for everybody and justice for everybody, but treating people in an equal and just manner. Two completely separate things that I can talk about next podcast, if you so choose. <sighs> Anyhow, so I was super excited with that. Sent a message to the superintendent thanking him for doing that. And then <laughs> I got a new superintendent who, by the way, I think is amazing, but also gave... Martin Luther King Jr. Day off. And I don't think any other kids have learned about Martin Luther King Jr. except for the younger kids who like draw a picture of him and color it in and stick it in the hallways. Super cute. Okay, here we go. So this is the final speech of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and it was in Memphis, Tennessee, April the 3rd, 1968. So, and there are going to be some of these that I don't think I'm going because I was going to read the entire thing and it's kind of long um not that long we'll see we'll see how I do okay starting in a minute here oh and by the way I didn't really enjoy any of those holidays because people are hypocrites okay moving on these are the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. thank you very kindly my friends as I listened to Ralph Abernathy in his eloquent and generous introduction and then thought about myself, I wondered who he was talking about. It's always good to have your closest friend and associate to say something good about you. And Ralph Abernathy is the best friend that I have in the world. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. You reveal that you're determined to go on anyhow. Something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And do you know, if we were standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt and I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness on top of the promised land. And in spite of this magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus, and I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Astrophan, assembled around the Parthenon, and I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality. 
but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on, even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire, and I would see developments around there through the various emperors and leaders, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the culture and aesthetic of life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I am named had his habitat, and I would watch Martin Luther as he tackled his 95 thesis on the door of the Church of Wittenberg, but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up to even to the 1863 and watch a valestating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. But I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problem of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, If you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now that's a strange statement to make, because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow, that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled today, whether they're in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, or Karagana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with a problem that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men, for years now, have been talking about war and peace. But now, no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer a choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. And also, in the human rights revolution... If something isn't done, and done in a hurry to bring the colored people of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. I can remember... I can remember when Negroes were just going around, as Ralph had said, so often scratching when they, where they didn't itch and laughing when they had not been tickled. But that day is all over. We mean business now, and we are determined to gain our rightful place in God's world. And that's all this whole thing is about. We aren't engaged in any negative protests and in any negative arguments with anybody. 
we are saying that we are determined to be men. We are determined to be people. We are saying that we are God's children. And that we are God's children. We don't have to live like we are forced to live. Now, what does all this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. You know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. But whenever the slaves get together, something happens in Pharaoh's court, and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery. When the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. Now, let us maintain unity. Secondly, let's keep the issues where they are. The issue is injustice. The issue is a, refru is a refusal in Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. Now, we've got to keep attention on that. That's always a problem with a little violence. You know what happened the other day and the press dealt only with the window breaking? I read the articles. They very seldom got around to mentioning the fact that 1,300 sanitation workers are on strike. And that Memphis is not being fair to them. And that Mayor Loeb is in dire need of a doctor. They didn't get around to that. No, we're going to march again. And we're going to march again in order to put the issue where it's supposed to be and force everyone to see that 300, that there are 1,300 of God's children here suffering, sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights wondering if this thing is going to come out. That's the issue. And we've got to say to the nation, we know what's coming out. For when people get caught up with that which is right, and they're willing to sacrifice for it, there is no stopping point of victory. We aren't going to let any mace stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement in disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember Birmingham, Alabama. When we were in that majestic struggle there, we would move out of the 16th Street Baptist Church day after day. By the hundreds, we would move out. And Bull Connor would tell them to send the dogs forth. And they did come. But we just went before the dogs singing. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. Bull Connor would say next, turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the trans physics that we knew about. And that was the fact that there was a certain kind of fire no water could put out. And we went before the hoses. We had known water. If we were Baptist or some other denomination, we had been immersed. If we were Methodist and some others, we had been sprinkled. But we knew water. That couldn't stop us. And we just went on before the dogs, and we would look at them. And we'd go on before the water hoses, and we'd look at them. And we'd just go on singing. Over my head, I see freedom in the air. And then, 
you would be thrown in the paddy wagons. And sometimes we were stacked in there like sardines in a can. And they would throw us in and old bully would say, take them off. And they did. And they would just go in the paddy wagon singing, we shall overcome. And every now and then we'd get in jail and we'd see the jailers looking through the windows, being moved by our prayers and being moved by our words and our songs. And there was a power there which Bull Connor couldn't adjust to. And so we ended up transforming Bull Connor into a steer. And we won our struggle in Birmingham. Now, we've got to go on into Memphis just like that. I call upon you to be with us when we go out Monday. Now, about injunctions. We have an injunction. And we're going into court tomorrow to fight this illegal, unconstitutional injunction. And we say to America, be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they hadn't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is a right to, is a right to protest for right. And so... Just as I say, we aren't going to let dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. We are going on. We need all of you. And you know what's beautiful to me? To see all these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. It is, who is that who is supposed to teach the longings and the aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whether injustice is around, he tells it. Somehow the preacher must be Amos and say, When God speaks, who can but prophesy? And again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with God, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. And he has anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. And I wanted to commend the preachers under the leadership of these noble men. Jason Lawson was one who has been in this struggle for many years. He's been to jail for struggling. He's been kicked out of Vanderbilt University for this struggle, but he's still going on, fighting for the rights of his people. Reverend Ralph Jackson, Billy Kyles, I could just go right on down the list, but time will not permit. But I want to thank all of them, and I want you to thank them, because so often preachers aren't concerned about anything but themselves. I'm always happy to see a relevant ministry. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder and all its symbolism. <laughs> but ultimately, people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey. 
But God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the New Jerusalem. But one day, God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what we have to do. Now, the other thing I'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. Let me say that again. Always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop and forget that. Collectively, this means all of us together. Collectively, we are richer than all the nations in the world. With the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France, and I can name the others, the American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than half of all of the exports of the United States, and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there, if we know how to pull it. And we don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to curse and go around acting bad with our words. We don't need any bricks and bottles. We don't need any Molotov cocktails. We just need to go around to these stores and say to these massive industries in our company, God sent us by here to say to you that you're not treating his children right. And we've come by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda, fair treatment where God's children are concerned. Now, if you're not prepared to do that, we do have an agenda we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. And so, as a result of this, we are asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. Go by and tell them not to buy sealist milk. Tell them not to buy, what is that other bread? Wonder Bread. What is that other bread company, Jesse? Tell them not to buy Hearts Bread. As Jesse Jackson had said, up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling the pain. Now, we must kind of redistribute that pain. We are choosing these companies because they haven't been fair in their hiring policies. And we are choosing them because they begin because they can begin the process of saying they are going to support the needs and rights of these men who are on strike. And then they can move on to town, downtown, and tell Mayor Loeb to do what is right. Not only that, we've got to strengthen black industries. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money to Tri-State Bank. We want a bank in movement in Memphis. Go to the Savings and Loan Association. I'm not asking you something that we don't do ourselves at, L- at SCLC. Judge folks and others will tell you. And we have an account here in the Savings and Loan Association from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We're telling you to follow what we're doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies here in the city of Memphis. Take out your insurance there. We want to have an insurance in. Like a sit-in. 
Now, there are some practical things we can do. We begin the process of building a greater economic base, and at the same time, we're putting pressure where it really hurts. I ask you the following thought here. I ask you to follow through here. Now, let me say as I move on to, to my conclusion that we've got to give ourselves to this struggle till the end. Nothing would be more tra tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We've got to see it through. And when we have our march, you need to be there. If this means leaving work, if it means leaving school, be there. Be concerned about your brother. You may not be on strike, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. One day, a man came to Jesus and he wanted to raise some questions about some vital manners of life. At this point, he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus did and threw him off base. Now, that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate, but Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite and a priest passed by on the other side of the road? They didn't stop to help him. And finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy, but he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man. This was the great man because he had the capacity to project the I into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to determine why the priest and Levi didn't stop. At times we say they're busy going to a church